Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Additionally, this episode's reading carries content warnings for discussion of online harassment. If that is something that you would like to opt out of, please skip forward to the 17 minute and 25 second mark. Welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Disneyx. Listeners, I am beyond thrilled to present a Trinidadian double feature on this show. Uh, following on the heels of Susan Palumbo last month, we have Brandon O'Brien. Brandon, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I am beyond excited that anyone else is beyond excited to have me on their podcast. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I've been, uh, following you for a while as a poet, as a writer, as a podcaster with good friend of the show, Mike Underwood. So, you know, uh, Speculate is, is one of the few actual play podcasts that I actually give my attention to anymore instead of just giving my downloads to. I'm very excited to hear that in particular. I'm very proud of the work that we do over at Speculate, and I'm glad to hear that people are enjoying it. Yeah, it's been really fun. And you had a game pretty recently with another friend of the show, Valerie Valdez, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Valerie Valdez is uh, a, a core member of a subgroup that we could we call The Strange Friends. Um, I enjoy playing with Valerie, which is why we play very often. We just closed... A uh, series of the upcoming Game Girl by Moonlight um, uh, that Valerie was a player in, and that was very dope. And uh, we've been uh, playing one one shot every every other month since then. Love that it. we've been having a lot of fun with. So uh, I like playing with Valerie. I like playing with the entire cohort of the Strange Friends, which includes Mike, as well as mm-hmm. uh, Iori Kusano, uh, Yori Gawain Lin, and I. I I, yeah, I just have a lot of feelings about all of these lovely people and the fact that they like spending time with me while we roll dice at each other. Yeah. I honestly, like, especially since the start of the pandemic, rolling dice at each other and listening to other people roll dice at each other, key, key part of my mental health strategy. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially in the last couple of years, it has been especially vital. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to talk more about this and, uh, about your game design as well, but, uh, I think before we get into that, we should get into content is cuisine. Is there anything we need to know about this reading going in? So, this story is about all of the weird things about the internet, all of the ways that the internet can be incredibly hostile. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess I should open first and foremost 
with uh, a content warning that this deals a lot in observing a lot of the a lot of the cruelties that take place on the internet, a lot of the verbal and psychological abuse that is core to the process of moderating internet uh, spaces in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is a story of uh, attempting to reckon with what that looks like in a very extreme sense. Fabulous. Uh, and listeners, you will have already heard a content warning at the start of this show, letting you know when to skip to if you would like to opt out. Well, I am ready when you are. Okay. Okay, Sarah, the real question. Why do you want to be a part of our team? The brown-skinned woman in the dark green pantsuit steepled her fingers, focusing on the girl's face. Easy, Miss Glasgow. There aren't a lot of digital content companies operating within the Caribbean. Miss Glasgow's American accent was pronounced, almost entrancingly unfamiliar. Hmm. It reminded her of the effort she was making to be understood. But this one isn't Caribbean-owned. A private entity doing digital video for the public. An American-based fandom market social media website. Barely out five years. And surely your qualifications... Yes, ma'am, I know. I could work wherever I want. But I want to work for the company that manages to maintain larger loyalty and customer satisfaction among users than any other social media space online, video or not. Sarah beamed as she continued. You guys have some sort of secret recipe that manages to turn over 12,000 reported abusive users a year into peaceful, respectful users who still fall in love with your brand, all while constantly hiring flesh-and-blood staff to do moderation instead of relying on algorithms. Hmm. I want to know what it is. Whatever a community site is doing to turn trolls into top-shelf digital natives, and I want to be a part of whatever makes that happen. Right. Miss Glasgow gave a tepid smile. But why? (laughs) Because you can change the fucking world like... Sarah put her hand over her lips, but Miss Glasgow gestured for her to continue. I'm sorry, I just... Compassion is hard to come by. Especially on the internet. I don't care about working for the company with the most zeros on their checks or the highest renown, even though you're still top five on both of those lists. I care about the company that's making a difference. The space that's trying to change the way people have conversations online. And I think that's here, and I want to figure out whatever it is your vision statement is and apply it to literally everything I do. Change the world, you say. Sarah gave a stern nod. If you'd pardon my language, the whole damn world. (laughs) All right, then. Miss Glasgow got up, circled the table, and held out her hand towards Sarah. When can you start, Miss Prasad? Really? Sarah shot up from her seat and gave Miss Glasgow a firm, eager handshake. I can start as soon as Monday, ma'am, if you'd let... Monday it is, then. (laughs) 8 a.m., bright and early. Uh, You'll be asked to sign a contract on the way out, if that's okay. And she gestured vaguely to Sarah's outfit, white polka dot blouse and maroon skirt and red platforms. Don't let my love of pantsuits fool you. We're 100% casual over here. Trust me, you don't need to be very formal about a lot of things at (laughs) WeView. Got it? Sarah grinned. Thank you again for giving me an opportunity, Miss Glasgow. No, thank you. 
for thinking we changed the world out here. Sarah left the office wanting to cartwheel all the way out of the exit. <laughs> she worked through shitty minimum wage jobs just to get a chance to do something she really liked. Not even something that paid well. Something cool. Something inspiring. And now she took her first step into working her way up the only social network people felt comfortable talking in. The only social network that wasn't a botfly-covered shitpile in the comments all the time. <laughs> Not like a couple trolls didn't slip through, but there were always a couple, and they never stayed trolls for long. That's the only reason why she cared. Then, out of the corner of her eye, she noticed something she didn't think she would see again for years. It made her heart race immediately. What are you doing here? She whispered to herself. She focused her eyes on the boy, dark-skinned, his afro rising up into the air perfectly round like a shaded halo around his heart-shaped face. Mm -hmm. He seemed deep in some comical conversation with a co-worker. Did he work here? Would she have to talk to him? Would he want to? Sarah didn't think she'd feel panicked about this, but then again, when was the last time she had even thought of him? If there was anything that could make her not want this job anymore, it would be Daryl Cruikshank. And low. On Monday, Sarah found herself trapped in the angriest taxi on the road. <laughs> the traffic stretched down every street between Woodford Square and the Coblenz Avenue office. Coupled with the otherwise unheard of traffic on the bus route, and a morning trip that should have taken 45 minutes had stretched on for an hour and a half. She called the office twice, a courtesy to let them know what was happening, but no one picked up. Anyone on the road who wasn't walking was honking, and anyone on the road who wasn't honking was cursing. <laughs> the balding, pot-bellied man in the driver's seat barely settled on any other single driver to direct his frustration at. He couldn't determine if all black people or all women couldn't drive either, but he seemed to lean toward women. Sarah closed her eyes, let out a slow and silent sigh, and waited anxiously for the ride to be over. When she came up to the WeView building, Miss Glasgow was holding one of the glass double doors open, already waiting for her. Good morning, Miss Passad, she said coldly. Good morning, ma'am. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to... Miss Glasgow slowly raised a hand to stop her. Come with me. She turned on her navy blue stiletto heels and stepped off, past the front desk and down the corridor beside the cubicles. I'm really sorry, Miss Glasgow. It was just the traffic. We'll talk about it just now, she said softly. She snapped her fingers at the other support employees, and each one turned in their own time from their computer monitors and up to her. We're headed to back into the conference room, everyone. This morning's briefing needs a do-over, it seems. One young man's voice spoke up from the back cubicles. But, boss lady, we was just... The work will be waiting for you, Miss Glasgow replied. This can't wait. For one intern, he rebutted. Miss Glasgow paused and turned to face him, greeting him with a glare. And that, everyone, is why we need a do-over. Sarah noticed them groaning as they rose from their desks, sending their contempt silently to her. All for two, at least. One young girl, possibly also an intern, whose mascara had run down her cheeks from what seemed like a terrible crying fit, and Daryl, who gave her a warm smile that still conveyed a hint of concern. 
The conference room was immaculate, mostly because it was simple. Three walls of pane glass against a white tile wall with one white board entered through a simple wooden door, one long green table in the center, fourteen wheeled office chairs around it. Sit, Miss Glasgow said, leaning forward on one chair at the opposite end of the table and watching Sarah and the other nine employees slide into their seats. Daryl sat to Sarah's right, tapping her on the shoulder to get her attention. Plus side, he whispered, Glasgow is a sight to behold when she presents. <laughs> what is this meeting even about? She asked. She briefly hesitated to turn to face him, still briefly unsure if they were close now. Miss Glasgow cleared her throat, her eyes trained on Sarah. I'm not doing this to punish anybody. Things happen. I get it. I know it's a pain to get here on time sometimes too, and this meeting isn't about any lame-ass crap about it's your duty to get up early or anything. You couldn't have known. Sarah felt the rest of the room's eyes on her. But it is about the importance of what we're doing and why I still expect a modicum of effort from my employees, even if it's just the effort to let someone know you're running late. Sarah wanted to interject, to mention that she had tried, but she decided against it. We're here to do something. To accomplish one particular goal well, efficiently, and with grace, Miss Glasgow continued. Everyone else knows what it is, so I'll save you the trouble and say it. We're here to perform radical acts of empathy. She wasn't looking at Sarah now, but at the crying woman, who gazed back with a kind of stilling fright. Empathy requires a great deal from us. It requires us to be open in our hearts to some pretty dark shit taking place on our site. And I mean some really fucking fucked up kind of shit. And I wish I got the chance to say this sooner, but now that we're having this meeting again, I'll just come out and say it. You guys are fucking brave. In your own ways. Sure, they're just comments, right? She put up air quotes around the just, said them in the fake voice of what Sarah imagined some abusive internet dude bro would sound like. <laughs> They're just videos, right? Wrong. Sometimes people are legitimately cruel here and will make any excuse they can to make it slide. I watched you, nodding to the girl as a gesture, file a report just when? Yesterday? Reams of sock puppet occults bullying some teenage girl because... What, they didn't like her voice in a makeup tutorial? The girl piped up, still fighting back sobs. Some some celebrity started harassing her for saying something about her lipstick line or something, and they, they keep piling on her in the comments of her videos about killing her pets and shit. About hurting her, her parents. Sarah couldn't tell if the other intern was getting angry or more depressed by recollecting it. Right. And you cleared all of them out. Got their IP addresses even. Locked some of them out for good. You know she made a whole follow-up video just to thank us for getting on that? Rose her viewership 2%. Gave us maybe 2,400 new users within a day, but that doesn't matter. I know that because it matters to the people who invested in us a year ago. But for her? That girl? Who just wanted to look pretty twice a week online? You don't think you made her day, but you did. Hmm. Didn't you? The intern nodded. 
Sarah observed the faces of the other interns, one contemplative expression, a couple worried, even one tense gaze. That required empathy of you. To watch that kind of shit and get into action. To have to literally consume all of those feelings at once and still try to help at least clean the mess out of her way. That's our fucking mission statement right there. Guiding policy for all outward-facing company service, including and especially moderation support staff. We aren't the biggest, fastest, or shiniest online video space, but what we sell is empathy. We're here to foster a digital space where people can share perspectives without having to be bullied or hated. We're here to bear that burden for our users. And if bearing that burden scares any of us, makes us sick, makes us freeze up and lose the ability to do our job, then any chance of empathy at all from this company to our clients is compromised. <sighs> Ms. Glasgow took a step toward the woman and she flinched. I'm sorry, Kelly, I get it. I can't take it all the time either. But it gets easier when we remember who we do it for. What we're trying to build. The intern named Kelly nodded again, gave a nervous smile, and wiped a single tear from her cheek with the back of her hand. Yes, ma'am. Miss Glasgow did another heel turn back to Sarah. And what we're building also requires being here on time. And that's what I'm going to read for now. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, what, what tension, what atmosphere, oh what I, I, I've been in technology long enough to, to have met people like that. And that was chilling, honestly, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that a lot because this is the hardest short story I've ever tried to sell. <laughs> yeah, I talk us talk us through this story a little bit just in terms of like and and this is something that we'll we'll touch on a little bit later but it very much just from what you've said just now feels like it is very much an experiment and Experiments can be really hard, and so uh, just sort of want to know your perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Because this, like, this was a particular kind of experiment, because I think this article maybe came out five years ago or more at this point, where there was an expose on a website I can't recall now. I can't remember if it was Buzz BuzzFeed or something bigger. Had did an entire expose mm -hmm. about the moderation process in Facebook and oh, how yeah. intensely demoralizing it is for the people who work in that space. And since then, there have been similar pieces about the process at YouTube as well. And I'm sure if mm -hmm. someone wanted to brave Elon Musk's ire, they could have that conversation about Twitter as well. And it's equally <laughs> damning. But I remember reading that first piece about Facebook and being, like, frightened Mm -hmm. Because it hadn't occurred to me at that moment. Like, we value, as consumers, we value human input in the moderation process because only another human can know when something is truly cruel or not. Mm -hmm. So when someone is obviously being abusive, obviously being racist or homophobic, we trust a human who knows that that is 
not good to see it and go, I am not going to allow this to happen in this space. But we never ask the obvious question, what is it like for someone who has to spend eight or more hours a day just watching people be homophobic because I asked them to watch it? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question is very depressing, yeah. uh, as we learned from that piece. And the dark idea that came up to me that triggered this experiment of a story is... What if being an internet moderator is the same as being a sin eater? Oh. Because we we didn't actually get to... Because I could just read this whole thing, but I'm not going to do that to anybody on this podcast. But we didn't mm-hmm. get to the beat where uh, we discover exactly how the company works on a functional level. Like the things that the company mechanically values that allows mm-hmm. it to continue working while not being profitable. Is that... It is hiring sin eaters, essentially. That your duty here is to actively consume brutality and then put it somewhere, but no one tells you in the contract that you're supposed to put it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So the thing that... One of the things that um, triggers uh, Sarah's kind of alertness about the company is uh, when she learns that there is only one drink menu there's only one drink menu in the uh staff lounge for the company and the drink is prepared by a large machine but no one can tell her what's in the drink and the answer to the question of what's in the drink is the reports Mm -hmm. um and like I guess I wanted to write a thing that felt, and I, I hadn't actually thought about this until a while, because I wrote this, I drafted this story years and years and years ago, when like that first piece had initially had come out about Facebook, mm-hmm. and it didn't occur to me what I wanted to do with the story until very, very recently, which is, I wanted to write a story that did for internet moderators what... Uh, clapping was supposed to do for nurses during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Um, I wanted to write something that felt like we appreciated not just that being a moderator is hard because uh, policy is hard or because mm-hmm. it's very difficult to get people to agree on what is just or unjust, but because being traumatized for a job mm-hmm. is a lot and at some point you kind of have to revere people for being willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was what this was supposed to be. I, I am, I I had an inkling from the title and from the, uh, the fervor of, uh, wanting to save the world that that's where that was going, and I'm really glad that you wrote this story and that it exists in some format, and I am uh, going to go have feelings after this podcast oh, recording is over. I I am glad that I could give you feelings, but I wish I could give you other feelings than these. <laughs> I, I'm sure you will. We've still got most of 40-ish minutes, and then, who knows, five-star runtime all the time. Nice. Uh, we could we could go for hours, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, that is 
Oof. So that that uh, doesn't dovetail at all with uh, with one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, but I'm going to uh, force it anyway. <laughs> Which is that uh, not only have you written fiction and poetry and we will talk about your poetry which i love uh but you're also a game designer and i would uh as somebody who i i wrote my first game last year uh just kind of because i i had an idea that i needed to exercise from my head and figured out that uh after listening to a lot of uh a lot of like solo journaling games being played uh being hacked to be played not by a single person uh i realized like oh i could make this idea into a game and then i won't have to think about it anymore uh i'd love to hear some of your philosophy behind the uh ways that you design games So, a lot of my philosophy, I guess, is the same kind of philosophy that I have sometimes towards my poetry, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, I am trying to craft an experience where the goal is um, to make a thing that is otherwise very obvious, very... Um, like to try to take that very obvious thing and try to expose it as much as possible in a way that mm-hmm. gives someone else an opportunity to see something else in it that I have not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess what I mean by that is um, there are things that I value in the games when I make them where I try to take that thing and be very clear this game is about this thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to leave as much room in there as possible where the act of exploring it exactly the way that I've asked you to is still wide enough that you can learn something about it that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with my assumptions. Um, and the example that kind of sticks to me perfectly is... Um, there is a trio of games that I call the Terrible Date Night Games. <laughs> um, which starts with a game that I made purely on a lark. I can't even remember what initially triggered me to make the game in the first place. But the Best name way to the... do it. Exactly, right? Uh, and the name of the game is The Moon Wants Me to Leave You. Mm-hmm. And the premise of the game is that it's a two-player GM-less game uh, where one player is... Um, this terribly smitten person who has just invited someone <laughs> that they really, really like on a date and is hoping that this date will be the the day that uh this person will finally be able to confess um that they're madly in love with this other person and that they can actually be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And the other player is probably a werewolf. <laughs> And is 
probably very frustrated by the fact that they think other people know they're a werewolf. <sighs> and they're kind of worried that they're on a date with someone who knows that they're a werewolf and the date is a trap and they're going to get seriously injured. <laughs> and they're about to tell this person, you know what? I am very afraid. I should leave. Oh. And the mechanics of the game are such that most of the time, but not all of the time, the game can only statistically end with the date going poorly, most likely with one of two players saying, I can't be here, and leaving the other person. Woof. It's a lot. Uh-huh. It reminds me of the uh, Tumblr post, which I'm, I think I have in my memes folder, so I'll be able to put it in the show notes, but of uh, the two co-workers at the office asking what to have for lunch, both suspecting that the other one is an anteater. <laughs> I've never seen this one, and I've seen most of them. I will send it to you once uh, once we're off of this. Uh, mm -hmm. I will make sure that it is in your life, because it is truly priceless. It, it sounds amazing. Um, but, like, the, the energy that I thought I was trying to capture in that moment is simply... Um, like, one, the terribly awkward energy of being on a bad date, and, mm -hmm. like, the curiosity of playing a story game where the story starts bad and becomes worse, and there's <laughs> nothing that you can do about it. Um, but also, just the awkwardness of feeling that you are deeply enamored of someone who you also worry knows very little about you and mm -hmm. struggling with what that lack of knowledge means for that relationship and whether that relationship... Trying to rationalize to yourself whether you believe that relationship can survive. Mm -hmm. And the very first time someone... Um, which I will literally name drop, a very good friend of mine <laughs> named Leo... Um, played the game with a friend and recorded their play oh. and then shared it back with me and then we had this very long conversation about what the game was about and I was like that's not that's not <laughs> what I was thinking about when we got here like I wanted what I wanted to do in that like if I were a less disciplined creator what I wanted to do in that moment was go yeah sure I was thinking about that the entire time I am very smart. <laughs> but I admit it, it hadn't crossed my mind, even though some of those things were things that I was also rec reckoning with in other parts of my work. I mm -hmm. didn't think it was part of this one. I thought I was making something to escape thinking about the rest of those things. Uh-huh. Um, and I think we don't talk enough about the act of making a game as an act of play. Mm-hmm. In a way that I that I didn't realize until that moment is very revelatory because, in a lot of ways, the act of making the thing and making the thing openly available for other people is part of the act of discovering what play does and means for the thing. In a lot in a lot of the same ways that writing a story and then putting the story out in the world is an act of rereading for the mm -hmm. writer 
because this is a moment when you're learning what it what that story is for other people and reckoning with whether it is also those things for you and why you hadn't noticed it or had downplayed it in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of my process is like that as well. I, I, I have begun to take severe pride in <laughs> discovering that there is something deep about the work that is beyond beyond me. Mm-hmm. And rationalizing, uh, like, learning to, like, embrace deeply what it means that I hadn't seen it or saw it and didn't think that it was valuable in the making mm-hmm. and how it becomes valuable now. Like, I tell this story often about um, Can You Sign My Tentacle, my debut poetry collection, which mm-hmm. is, when I, wrote, when I started writing the collection, it was a joke. I didn't think that this was a collection that I wanted to work on. I was working on another poetry collection at the time, but mm-hmm. it had already crossed the chapbook, the chapbook threshold when Interstellar Flight Press was asking for submissions, and I had written one, the one poem um, that is core to the theme of the work, literally the first poem in the book, uh, mm-hmm. Do- uh, Haster asks for Donald Glover's autograph. Um, I had written that as a joke the night before a poetry reading Zoom call for Uncanny Magazine um, in their, uh, th- I think that would would have been like their uh, th- like third or fourth Kickstarter, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is a joke. I, am, I, I have written this because I didn't want to read any of the poems that you can already read in Uncanny. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to think about this uh, collection again. And then, I don't want to think about this poem again. And then Interstellar Flight Press opened for chapbooks. Um, the thing that I'm working on is already too big. And I look at this poem and go, can I make this? Can I make more of this? Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I didn't care about the Cthulhu mythos. I didn't care about Lovecraft. I am not attached to Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I tried to spend as much time as possible not engaging with the discourse, because the last time I engaged with the discourse, people were literally the cruelest that they've ever been to me on Twitter. Yep. Um, as is their want, which is, again, comes full circle, yeah. I guess. Um, but I wrote a couple poems, mostly as a joke, mostly to explore other things through the mythos lens. And in that mm-hmm. process, one of the things that I appreciate a lot and tell people a lot about the collection since is I actually have a lot more empathy for Lovecraft, having mm-hmm. done that work, because I went through all of that and came out of it going, yes, Lovecraft still made these terrible, hostile decisions. Um... But it is almost uniquely because he is the product of a culture that we should be critical of his engagement in culture and what that means for mm-hmm. others, but also be willing to ask more deeply some questions about Lovecraft and these predilections because Ooh. he was surrounded by other people mm-hmm. who either saw it and encouraged it in a lot of situations um, mm-hmm. as a lot of scholars have already observed, or acknowledged it and thought it was not noteworthy because his work is noteworthy, uh, mm-hmm. as if those things were separate, even though it was fundamentally a part of his co- his capacity for telling narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, because he doesn't even avoid telling the stories about... the He doesn't hesitate 
writing people the way that he sees them. Right. Uh, even when it has no value to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does that mean for us knowing that? How do we... Like, essentially, I learned after the book was out that I wrote a book about how do we not simply form an opinion about Lovecraft and not mm-hmm. merely how do we recuperate our perspective about Lovecraft, but what are we doing to make sure that there isn't a Lovecraft? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are Lovecrafts all over the world. Oh, yeah. And, like, if our only opinion is this is not a thing we're supposed to talk about, then when our friends behave like this, we are either encourage- encouraging them or ignoring it because their work is greater than the things that they do. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get another Lovecraft. Um, yeah. And that made me, like, it's probably even crueler to say that I pity him more than I could possibly hate him or judge him at this point. Mm-hmm. Because, like, for instance, he didn't name his pet cat. Dozens of people heard his pet's cat's name. Yeah. And either didn't have an opinion or thought it was funny. But it wasn't his decision. Yeah. And big, 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 big yikes. Yeah, like, how do we, like, in the world that we live in, how do we create the space in which we can be better friends to people who are causing harm such mm-hmm. that harm is minimized? And what does it mean when you're not? And, yeah. Like, and the funny thing about it is, the way that, the point at which I realized that is that there is a sub-series of poems in the collection called the Lovecraft Theses, mm-hmm. where the joke that I thought I was engaging with at the time is... Lovecraft is accidentally very hip-hop because his uh-huh. fundamental fairs are fundamentally hip-hop fairs. His fair of the other is the fair, is the desire to defend the block. Um, his frustration at lacking a certain level of power or prestige because of other people's access to his space is a desire to empower your own hood over other people's hoods. All of those mm-hmm. things are true. And then... In the writing of the poems, the narrative through line in those poems just accidentally became you are a member of a community where every decision that you make is part of the wider assumption of what that community values and stands for because mm-hmm. you identify as a member of this community. So if you don't value these things, but value your community... What are you doing to change the perspective of a cu- of your community for other people? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize that that was what I was doing until those poems <laughs> were done. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, cool. Thank you, poem, for teaching me a thing. It's not like I wrote you anything. I guess you fell mm-hmm. from a tree and I discovered you because this is something that I didn't notice before. Um, and I like when that happens in the making process. Yeah. And I like it in the, I like it while making RPGs because I like discovering that the act of discovery for other people means that they have to engage physically with something, that they have to behave in ways. Mm-hmm. And then I watch them do that and go, well, that's not what the rule is supposed to make you do. Why did you make you, why did it make you do that? Because I thought the rule was about X. Mm-hmm. 
I wasn't thinking about X, but thank you for telling me that X is a thing we're thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I really... Like, the the through line of this is really making my brain buzz in really fun ways right now because I'm just thinking about, like, it. it's true. Like, the way that you engage with a poem is the same way you engage with a game, which is, like, the, the act of reading a poem and especially, like, you know... Shouts to all of my professors who said, like, you have you have to read poems aloud. They don't work mm-hmm. just in your head. Like, the act of reading a poem aloud is interpreting that poem afresh. And, you know, oftentimes teaching you something about yourself, teaching you something about, you know, what the, like, a poem is doing something to you, and you're doing something to the poem by in- interpreting it, and like that—that's really cool. Yeah. No. Like, I. Uh, this is mostly an aside, but I think that is also valuable here because of that distinction, right? Like, play is the act of reading a game aloud, mm-hmm. um, and that means that you value the text a lot as well. The um, one of the ways that I kind of discovered that recently, a couple of years ago, is I had this mind-blowing revelation. And I've seen it come ac- come across in a lot of other uh, people's works. It happens a lot in stuff that uh, Iori Kusano has uh, written, actually, and which is mm-hmm. what kind of cemented this, like concretized this in my brain. Which is a recipe is a poem that you read aloud by cooking. Oh. Woof. And that doesn't make, s- and it uh, that sounds like it's a silly, facetious assumption until you re- until you realize. That in those recipes, if it says that it needs a dash or um, a sprinkle of a thing, mm-hmm. you're placing trust in someone whose hands are bigger or smaller than yours. Mm-hmm. Which means that they're making a thing that is not what you asked them to make. Mm-hmm. They're making the interpretation of the thing. Um... And just the way that they will perhaps knead dough or whether they will use a knife or a food processor to um, dice a vegetable. Mm-hmm. Um, what, Where they get um, the liquid ingredients that they need for a certain thing that aren't water. Um, mm-hmm. And the price of the thing if you didn't tell them that they needed a specific thing. Or if they live in a place where that thing is impossible to get. Um mm-hmm. Like, if I want to make a Sazerac, I can't use Angostura bitters because they said not to. But what mm-hmm. if I did? That's the bitters you had. Yeah. Um, and, I'm ca- like, a lot of how we engage with the act of physicalizing any experience in its own, in its own way is an act of play. Whenever mm-hmm. there is an instruction that needs to be performed... That instruction, unless you're doing something where the stakes are life and death. And even then, you're just Mm -hmm. participating in a life or death poem, which I don't recommend. But that's the the state that you're in. Um, 
But anytime you are engaging with those things, you are essentially engaging with a piece of art where the end result is not defined by its by its original creator. Mm-hmm. The chef doesn't care whether your lemon meringue pie tastes or is shaped like theirs. They gave you mm-hmm. the directions to make a lemon meringue pie. What matters is that when you eat it, you feel fulfilled. Yeah. Whew. This is... This is like... <laughs> My my brain is literally exploding right now. So uh, a couple of hours before this recording, we're recording this right at the start of April, uh, several several weeks before it comes out. Uh, and by the time this comes out, my essay will be out as well. But uh, Sarah Gailey's uh, Stone Soup just released uh, the two recipes from this month's uh, Personal Canon's cookbook uh, in their newsletter uh, this afternoon, and Shingenkor uh, uh, has a kanji recipe in there, and I have a macaroni and cheese recipe in there. And Ooh. this is uh, the... And I talk about this in, in the essay that will accompany this recipe uh, in a couple of weeks, coming out on the 12th, but this recipe is something that I received from uh, my friend's mom and then made it my own, but for the last over 20 years, I have only ever had this recipe as prepared by me. I've never experienced somebody else's interpretation of it, and I'm very excited for other people, even though I'm not going to be able to taste all the variations, I'm very excited for other people to be interpreting this recipe specifically in the way that, uh, like, one of the things that I talk about in the essay that uh, goes along with it, Trust the Process, is, like, learning... My mom cooked by instinct and learning to view recipes as frameworks and uh, as as ways to experiment with things. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just like the the synchronicity that is happening here. I just did like the synchronicity, you know, Simpsons hand gesture, (laughs) you know, working in tech. Like, it's all coming together right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like this was... This was a serendipitous meeting for us both. It was. I... I'm... We're we're having this conversation, and this weird sound just happened, and this blue police box showed up in the room, the podcast room, oh, and I'm wondering if we can take a step... I... Doing this bit for now five... Going on... Over five, over four years now, I think I've finally leaned into the inherent absurdity of it, uh, and it only makes it better. I'm wondering if we can take a step into this time machine and go back, and if you have any advice uh, specifically, maybe, about uh, experiments that you would like to offer to younger writer Brandon, and by extension to all of our listeners in whatever part of the writing life they are in. 
<laughs> um, there is a version of this advice that I would definitely give myself, and the way that I give it to myself is particularly hilarious, um, <laughs> because I would tell my I, if I could go back to specifically my high school self, I would mm. go back specifically to any period during high school where I was still uh, enrolled in additional mathematics, and I would mm-hmm. go to that version of me and go, keep writing as if you're still right here. And what I mean by that is, I didn't like that class and eventually dropped it, but mm-hmm. because I signed up for it and wasn't allowed to be unsupervised for two periods, oh. I was still mandated by my dean to be present in that class for that entire time. So during that time, I wrote, this is 15-year-old me. I wanted to be a writer, but at that point thought that it was physically impossible. Didn't mm-hmm. know what else I was going to do with my uh, with my life at that point. Was leaning into writing poetry. Uh, there's a very fun part of my life during that point where um, other kids at the all-boys school that I went to that was physically attached to an all-girls school to the... Uh, very east of us mm-hmm. um, those boys would be like oh you write poetry I will give you money to write a poem <laughs> for this girl you have never met so I can get a date with this girl and I'm like this is a bad idea for you <laughs> for me it's money that I never have to think about so that was a thing that I did and ultimately regretted because it's weird um, <laughs> but like at that point in time I didn't care about anything other than just making the thing that was right in front of me because I was compelled to make a thing. Mm-hmm. Having a career is hard, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of pressure sometimes to feel like you are supposed to write the thing that is palatable, or you're supposed to, uh, if you're making a thing that is challenging, the assumption of what makes a thing challenging is mm-hmm. based on the market or, um, like, uh, the cultural zeitgeist and not whatever is striking your fancy at this moment in this time. And Mm -hmm. especially when writing is the only thing that you do, it can be very challenging in part because if this is the way that you get paid, you need to do a lot of it in order to continue getting paid. And Mm -hmm. that can, that can make you, that can put you in positions where you go, okay, I just need to make anything. This is not mm-hmm. a thing that I care about. I just need to fulfill. I just need to tick someone else's box so they can take the store from me and give me $300 or something. Right. And while that is good, I am not I am not here to tell anybody that the techniques that you pursue to survive are invalid because I try to survive out here as well. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, it is particularly valuable to write a thing as if you do not care if anyone is going to read it. Mm-hmm. To to get back to the point where the thing that you enjoyed was the thing right in front of you was fulfilling you. Um, I lose that sometimes, and then sometimes I make an absolutely silly thing <laughs> that it was actually really cool at the time, and going, okay, this was nice. I'm not sure if anybody is going to like it. I'm going to put this aside. And then mm-hmm. that happens to become a debut chapbook, and it happens to win the Elgin. <laughs> um, and... I am still utterly flabbergasted by the fact that all of those things happened in that sequence because mm-hmm. I still 
Like, a part of me is still overjoyed by the fact that I didn't think it was anything at that point. I just made it on a lark. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to the point where I can continuously make things on a lark and not have to worry about whether that thing is going to make me money. And there's not enough hours in the day for me to constantly be in that position. But whenever mm-hmm. I am aware of it, I try very often to go, let's just make the thing that is making you happy right now. Because when you are happy, you are making the thing that you consider the deepest, truest part of you. Mm-hmm. And if people want to buy you anyway, ultimately, that's the thing you want to sell them anyway, right? But right now, you don't need to think about selling. You just need to think about making the thing. What a benediction. Uh, thank you very much. I can only hope that it lasts as long for me as it does for everybody else. But I hope that everyone else on Earth is writing like they're writing when they were in high school and didn't have to care about this. Unless you're Truly. Amelia Atwater Rhodes, who wrote a novel <laughs> while she was still in high school, in which I hope that you're writing like you're still writing when you were in preschool. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Truly, uh, something that I, I wish for everybody and something that um, I feel like I try to embody, uh, you know, this is, we're on season five of Tales from the Trunk now, and, and it's been into its fifth season now because this is the thing that I really like doing and uh, like getting to talk to cool, amazing people uh, who are, like, super, super smart and cause my brain to explode all the time. (laughs) And then you get to talk to me. And I get to talk to you too, which is even better. Oh God. (laughs) We've entered the sincerity zone here. Mm -hmm. I appreciate this a lot. Um, so we've mentioned, can you sign my tentacle? Uh, and I think you've given a little, uh, I, I think you've given a really effective pitch of it already but in case i don't know in case our listeners like tuned out in the middle like (laughs) trust me wind it back re-listen but uh can you give us the elevator pitch on your debut chat book uh (laughs) i've i've actually rehearsed this elevator pitch a lot because it's it's my favorite way of describing this book um which is, what if the great old ones of the Cthulhu mythos came down to Earth one day because they needed to get uh, a rapper's autograph before he left town? Oh. Um, like, I... I adore, how, I adore how simple and silly that sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I adore that... Uh, like, a good elevator pitch, I think, is supposed to set you up to go, okay, this is very interesting, and then... The other shoe drops as you're reading it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I am pleased to say that I've had people come back to me after having known nothing about me or my work, (laughs) uh, finally getting a copy of the book and then going, why didn't you tell me about the rest of it? I was like, what rest (laughs) of it? Most of the book is just uh, folks getting autographs from... Like yes, this is true. But why didn't you tell me about everything else that's happening while that's happening? It's like mm-hmm. because the, it's also about the, like this. I, I didn't lie to you, yeah. and I appreciate I appreciate that I have not lied to anyone as a result. So yes, excellent. Uh, and also, uh, while we're in the land of elevator pitches, and I, I know we've uh, gassed it up some already, 
Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about Speculate? Aha, yes. Uh, Speculate is an actual play podcast uh, for and of writing professionals. Um, we play tabletop RPGs. Um, and uh, all of our uh, players are made up of science fiction, fantasy, and horror writers presently acting in the field. Um, the co-hosts, uh, myself, Michael R. Underwood, and Gregory A. Wilson, um, will kind of rotate GMing duties among groups of other writers where we play. Um, we've uh, done Dungeons & Dragons quite a bit of times. Um, we've done Blades in the Dark, Court of Blades. Um, we've done uh, one-shots of stuff like uh, Slug Blaster. Um, lasers and Feelings. Lasers and Feelings, yes, which is also very fun. That was uh, uh, a, a great deal of fun. Um, we got an opportunity to do an actual play of Girl by Moonlight by Andrew Gillis, uh, which I am very excited for other people to get to play it because it is upcoming from Evil Hat. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely keep your eye out on that because it is a brilliant game. Um, so yeah, I just... I admire being a part of the team because I feel the same way about the mission statement of Speculate that my co-hosts do, which is... Um, giving writers an opportunity to craft narrative through play is also mm -hmm. giving readers an opportunity to see their narrative process in real time. Mm -hmm. um, how do we think about character? How do we think about progressing story? How do we think about uh, conflict when the only thing that we're in control of is what our what one character wants to do? We're not even mm -hmm. in control of what they actually do because then the dice will interject. Uh -huh. um, I think that's a very strong kind of lens into a uh, writer's process because mm -hmm. it tells you like how we will prioritize the decisions that we make when our scope of engagement with the narrative has been reduced, but our ability to collaborate has been expanded because you're telling the story with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I adore that a lot. I wish we had more hours in the day to make much more of it. Because oh, yeah. the other difficult part, like, if you thought arranging a D&D &D game for you and four of your friends was hard, try doing it when you and your four friends are all writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of the most fun things that I get to do, and I'm very excited to keep getting to do it. And I hope that more people get to see and hear the stuff that we do um, because uh, I want not only for us to continue being able to invite other people and get to do more cool stuff, but I want to, I want people to be able to see, to oh, get yeah. this glimpse into um, rightly processed through the act of play because we are in a media landscape where people value it as a narrative medium much more highly now mm -hmm. um, because of the saturation of actual play content. And I want people to be able to still have fun with it because speculation is still a lot of fun. But mm -hmm. hopefully be in a space where making the fun and being critical about the act of telling the story is happening at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you wish that Tales from the Trunk was an actual play podcast... I think you should probably subscribe to Speculate. Yeah. 
Uh, Especially since we have already also noted that several of your good friends and folks who have been on the podcast before have yes. also played and speculate stuff. So yeah, there yeah. a natural synergy is taking place. Yep, and uh, you know, schedules willing, I'll have even more. Uh, I right after this, I'm gonna DM Yuri and be like, "Hey, you want to come yes. on?" I am very excited uh, for more people to. I get to talk to be talk to Iori about all of their cool stuff. Yeah, they're absolutely amazing. Nobody should be sleeping on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, if you want more really smart uh, role playing, you know you can also listen to Friends at the Table, but listen to Speculate first. Like, <laughs> you know the the Friends at the Table, like the cool kids are into that, but like the really cool kids are into Speculate. I am flattered. Thank you very much. I am I'm not picky. You are allowed to enjoy whatever you are allowed to enjoy. I just want you to be able to enjoy Speculate as well. Yes, yes. Please, no, come on uh, over. Do also enjoy Friends at the Table, but also, also enjoy Speculate. Enjoy, enjoy media in general. Yes. Uh, you, on, there's on a wealth subject, of cool things being made. There are so many cool things being made. On that subject, uh, is there any media that you've been particularly enjoying that you'd like other people to know more about? Hmm. Um, for the past couple of whiles, it's actually been very difficult for me to uh, sit down and watch things. I mm-hmm. like like most like most people. I I tend to take a lot of my media in very short bursts. Yep. Um. One of the things that uh, I'm in this weird space where um, uh, the the comfort viewer part of my brain has kind of collapsed back into the weirdest thing for a person like me to justify as part of my comfort media, Mm -hmm. which is a subset of police procedural television. Um... (laughs) Because I've really been enjoying a TV show called The Rookie, which oh, wow. is good. Mm-hmm. I am loath to recommend anybody should continue ex- uh, engaging with police procedural media as a part of their uh, content diet for lots yeah, of very fuck critical. Cops. Yeah, call a cab. Um, but something about The Rookie is still absolutely entrancing to me. In part mm-hmm. because it is trying very earnestly to tell the story of um, a, ver- a, a a gentleman who is well on in his years <laughs> attempting to get into the um, uh, the LAPD. Learning that the LAPD is obviously very broken. Mm-hmm. Learning that other cops wish that it were not that case. And then going, okay, I want to do whatever is necessary to make sure that stops happening. Mm-hmm. It's still a cop show. Cops, cops are still copping in the show in right. ways that is still not perfect or healthy or ideal. But the fact that a the fact that we're getting more of and that uh, the rookie is one of the shows that is willing to be one of a trend in police procedural media where people are willing to admit the system is broken. A lot mm-hmm. of cops behave in obviously improper ways as a result 
but not everybody wants it to be so. It is so because the status quo allows it, and breaking the status quo is obviously very difficult, but people want to do it anyway. It's actually very earnest to me. It's the mm-hmm. bare minimum that a show could do at that point, and I'm very glad that this is the show that does it. So some part of that just kind of fused that fused a couple neurons in my head to the point where I can't be further critical of it at at, at, at any other point. Um, That's fair. So yeah, um, I've also recently rediscovered a thing that just triggered a rewatch recently in my brain. Um, do, if if you, like me and many others, uh, are neurodivergent, you have had this moment where suddenly oh, yeah. re-remembering a thing makes you go oh wait, that was an entire part of my life at some point. Mm-hmm. At some point, randomly watching a YouTube video formed the whole thought in my brain, oh yeah, Sam Waterston was in a TV show that was written by Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> that was the thought. That show, by the way, is an HBO series from 2014 called The Newsroom. Um, oh Yeah. Which uh, starred Jeff Daniels and, and Emily Mortimer and Sam Waterston and Olivia Munn. Um, and it is about a uh, cable news channel attempting to like recuperate the identity of one of their uh, uh, former uh, news hosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, set like just around the end of nine eleven, um, capturing like a great deal of like most of the late twenty, uh, twenty aughts to the mm-hmm. early twenty tens, just kind of, um, trying to tell the story of what a genuinely earnest newsroom has to do to be both nuanced and genuinely truthful. Mm-hmm. And it is intense as hell. Of course it is. Aaron Sorkin wrote it. Right, yeah. Um, but, like, the thing that endears me about it is none of its characters are characters that if you told me I was watching real news made by these people, I would trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm here going, oh, but here you're principled. <laughs> this is obviously Aaron Sorkin preaching to me, but I am going to accept this in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um and it's actually very cleverly written in Sorkin's in Sorkin's way. Yeah. It's very deeply critical about the way that news was being made at that point in time. Because remember, this would have been around the the early height of um, Trump now getting into politics. Mm-hmm. Um, that and was it's, a hell of a time. Yeah, like you, you think about it as a period in time, and you go, "When did this start, and when this, when did this end?" And it becomes very difficult to process it in your brain. Um, and like the thing that I appreciate about the newsroom as a show is, it's willing to ac- accept that the fourth estate has a responsibility mm-hmm. that is difficult to bridge alongside being a business. Mm-hmm. But that's not a reporter's job to bridge. A reporter's job is to simply tell us the news. Mm-hmm. And how do you reconcile all of those things at once? It's actually really interesting. That sounds very cool. I should uh, definitely check that out. I, When you said, like, 
that neurodivergent mood of suddenly discovering a thing and remembering it that that it was your whole personality just reminded me that I think probably October of last year I just randomly rediscovered in like 2001 maybe or 2000 uh Nickel Creek on their maybe on their self-titled album released a cover of Pavement's song Spit on a Stranger that somehow like 13-year-old me however old I was at the time latched onto as like this song is me this is my song and it was it was exactly that thing where it just came up in a YouTube mix a couple of months ago, and it was the only thing I could think about. Yeah. And that's just, that's just how brains be sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes one of your neurons just buys a small bucket of concrete and just lays it on all of their axons. Uh Just so they never have to move again. And honestly, I love that for them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Brandon, it's been amazing having you on here uh i can't wait to have you on again in the future before we get going where can our listeners find you elsewhere uh they can find me on the hell site um at the rising tides i am still there i don't know why um (laughs) i'm also on instagram at the rising tides um i have a newsletter uh brandonobrien.xyz um where you will mostly see the actually unfiltered catastrophic thoughts that I have on a regular basis when they're not on Twitter. Um, and of course, as previously stated, you can find me on Speculate. Um, yep. SpeculateSF.com is the website where you can find more information about our audio podcast and the live streams of that content as well. Um, if yes. you want to watch us on Twitch, play in real time um, is also a thing that you can do. Uh, so yeah. Fantastic. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on a device, you can absolutely find Speculate there as well. Mm-hmm. And Brandon, of course, I should also remind everyone, Can You Sign My Tentacle is still available wherever you get your poetry books. Yes. Uh, wherever fine verse is sold, go and buy that book. Uh, and uh, also, lots of other places... Uh, you know, obviously, Uncanny, Fire, uh, mm-hmm. your your website will tell people where they can find your writing. The website link will be in the show notes. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, uh, again, I'm just, uh, it's the sincerity zone. I love this. <laughs> I love this too. Thank you for... Giving me an opportunity to be an inch for an hour. Absolutely. This if, is a lovely convo. If this podcast can't do anything else except giving authors a place to be unhinged, like, I'm still happy. Yeah. Works for me as well. Yeah. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. 
You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisnyx. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs>